Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of chatting with three incredible farriers who also have podcasts. Brian Mullins of Mullins Farrier Podcast, Dr. Simon Curtis of the Hoof of the Horse Podcast, and Daniel Bennett of Lockdown Farriery Learning Podcast. If you're a hoof geek, you need to check these podcasts out. We had a conversation about farrier safety and how to keep the professionals in your horse's life safe while they're working with your horse. There are some simple things owners can do that can go a long way. Special shout out to Brian Mullins and his editor Heather at Twisted Spur Media for putting this together. I hope you all enjoy our conversation. So we'd just like to welcome everybody and thank you all for making and taking the time on a busy Saturday to, to do this in various time zones as well. We are all fellow podcasters who are normally talking to an audience of farriers and of care professionals, but today we're going to have a PSA or maybe a PSC, a public service conversation about farrier safety. And this is for you, the horse owners, who might not be aware of some of the aspects of this job that can be helped. We know that it's an inherently dangerous job, but there are many ways where it could be made safer. And at the end of the day, everybody could go home happy. You, the horse, the farrier, and come back the next time on their schedule. So hopefully this can enlighten you. And uh, I guess we'll start with going around the room and introducing ourselves. Dr. Simon Curtis, what's your background? Hello, everybody. My name's Simon Curtis. I have worked as a farrier since 1972 in Newmarket, England. I've shot all types of horses, although I mainly concentrated on thoroughbreds and some Arabians. In 2017, I gained a doctorate uh, for my study of hooves of young horses. During my time as a farrier, I have trained 32 apprentices, and I'm still very much involved in my craft. All right, and Daniel? Right, so I'm Daniel Bennett. I'm a farrier from the United Kingdom. I've been shoeing for over 26 years. 22 years been involved in farrier education in the United Kingdom. I'm currently lead practical uh, tutor stroke lecturer at the Hereford School of Farrier. I also have a podcast. My podcast, I started Lockdown Farrier Learning Podcast. I started when we went into lockdown last year with COVID-19, basically just to reach out to my students who are stuck at home, but obviously it's gone a bit global and has reached out to a lot of farriers around the world, which is really good. For sure. I uh, have learned a lot and I don't think anybody's done more for farrier safety in the last little while than you have with some of your more recent podcasts. And we also have Alicia Harlov. Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Alicia Harlov and I have a little bit of a different background. I was a public school teacher <laughs> for 10 years and my horse was diagnosed with navicular disease and I became obsessed with studying hoof care and practices and what 
you know, helped certain horses and what didn't. So through that, I, when I started studying more about horse feet during my prep periods at work, then studying how I could teach my students better, (laughs) I thought that it might be a good choice to leave teaching. So I switched to become a hoof care provider. And I would say that actually probably 90% of my horses that I see are barefoot. And the other 10% are in composite glue on shoes. And I have tried my best to talk to as many people as I can and travel and work with as many people as I can because I'm just obsessed with hooves. My podcast, The Humble Hoof, actually started because I wanted to ask questions of other professionals that I wanted to know the answers to. (laughs) So I feel it's as much about me learning as me providing information for others. Excellent. I'd have to admit that that was the reason I started mine was to have conversations with people I normally wouldn't have been able to. And uh, same reason, just obsessed with feet. And I worked with horses since I was 12 years old and biked around the neighborhood asking for a job for many of the farmers. And then, yeah, started the farrier trade fairly later in my life's career, but uh, I've been doing it for 13 years now and then started the Mullins Farrier podcast for the same reason, to learn as much from all these incredible people who have taken this trade so much further than I would have ever expected. So I'm glad to have you all here. You're all part of that group. So I thought we would start with just the horse behavior component. Now, one of the complaints that I had heard actually in one of the breakout sessions in one of Dr. Simon's webinars was just that there are a lot of new horse owners out there who might not know some of the behaviors and ways to manage those behaviors that can actually make our job quite dangerous. As I said before, it's inherently dangerous and you can't account for everything, but there are a lot of things that we can do to ensure that the horse is, I mean, this is also uh, pertains to the horse and the handler in being safe during the process. So would any of you like to take the lead on that? Okay, right. So, well, obviously, I know, I know you've got a lot of North American listeners on your podcast, Brian, but obviously the work we did on my podcast recently uh, the conversation we started where we'd had was myself and another couple of farriers, a health and safety official and an equine dentist, just to so it just didn't sound like farriers moaning about dangerous horses. Because obviously <laughs> they, they deal with the same stuff on the other end of the horse. One thing that conversation led to, and I believe it was on the back burner anyway, was the British Farriers and Blacksmiths Association was to actually create a survey to sort of like get some facts based on a farrier survey. I think I sent you a copy of the survey. Yeah. Yeah. So it was quite interesting. I mean, like, I don't know if this is the same world over, but when you put a survey to farriers, it's like trying to get um, people to fill in the paperwork is quite difficult sometimes. (laughs) It's like herding ducks. But we actually had quite a good response because they say on a survey, if you have uh, 10%, it's a good result. And I think we had approximately 350 returns from potentially 3,000 farriers. So it's not bad. But again, I think out of the results, 
60% actually cited the actual behavior of the horse as being the reason why the accident happened. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what you guys feel about it, but I mean, one of the biggest change to equine behavior uh, we see, certainly in the United Kingdom, is lack of experience and knowledge by the person handling it. Mm-hmm. I mean, years ago, horses tended to be owned by what we called horsey folk, you know, who'd grown up, went to riding schools, went to the pony club, may have gone to college or actually gone into industry and, you know, gained a lot of experience being around and working with horses. Whereas probably about between 15 and 20 years ago in the United Kingdom, there was a strange sort of chain of events which actually led to a lot of non-horsey people giving it a go. Mm-hmm. We had um, a big outbreak of foot and mouth disease in, in our country, and there was a lot of farms changed use from being sort of like dairy and sheep farms, and they turned their barns into sort of livery stables and started to um, provide very cheap livery for horse owners. And about the same time, we stopped importing all of our broken horses and or failed racehorses to uh, the continent, probably to be eaten. So all of a sudden, the animal markets were full of horses wanting to be rehomed for very little money. So a lot of people jumped on the boat and brought a horse. And the typical sort of thing we'd get is you'd ask them, where have you learned how to have a horse? How have you learned to have you got your knowledge to be able to own the horse? And they'd all say, well, we've, I brought the horse and we'd learn together. So a lot of the stuff is reactionary. It's not preventative. Yeah, for sure. Just to go back to your survey, do you think you had such a huge response because that is something that the farriers are probably pretty passionate about? I think it's got to the point, and again, I think we spoke about this in a previous podcast, farriers are a lot more better these days at communicating with each other because of social media and you know the common thing is for a farrier to get injured and before he even gets to the hospital he's posted a picture of his smashed hand on facebook (laughs) yep for sure and and put bleak horse owners or i think we've become more and more aware of it and i think years ago there was don't know the best way to say this but you know there was a lot more if if you had um a a fractious horse you know there was twitching things you could do with ropes there was a lot more i don't want to say barbaric but there's lots more methods of restraint yeah which you could use whereas i don't know what it's like in america but certainly in the uk if you were caught doing that now you would probably end up having disciplinary action taken against you because you've not done that to their horse. You've done that to a member of their family. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, th- I think our backs are against the wall because there was sometimes where we would just fight through it and get the job done. And we'd get injured on the way, That's, but that was part and parcel of it. Nowadays, we're just getting injured. and We're not getting the job done most of the time because you are dealing with someone's family member not a commodity as it once was that environment definitely has changed for sure now what do you think alicia what are some of the things you've run into 
Yeah. And I know that now we're kind of talking about horse behavior itself. Cause I can think of a million times where I've been really nervous and it has contributed. It's been more the environment or something that's going on around the horse. But one thing that I think is really important is that horse owners are able to comfortably hold up their horse's feet for a significant amount of time on their own and not expect, you know, me to come in and be able to hold up that horse's foot for two minutes at a time. And if they can't do that, I've been really lucky with the owners that I've worked with that they have pretty good horsemanship skills for the most part. And I've seen horses that are fairly good to work on unless it's pain related, which is a whole nother conversation. But I want owners to be able to hold up their horse's feet as long as I might need to and not expect me to sort of muscle through it because fighting a horse, there's probably a chance that I'm not going to win that one. (laughs) 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 And I don't want to, like, I don't want to have to fight a horse or feel like, you know, if they're yanking their foot around that I'm expected to just deal with it or or strong arm them when even just trying to hold on to a horse that's fussy can really tweak, like, you know, put you out of work for a week because you pulled something in your back. And that's, you know, our income and our livelihood. Yep, for sure. And I mean, just to fall back on something that Daniel said, with the people coming in and it being sort of a reactionary thing in their learning horse behavior and how to manage it. We often, because we're now the the horse expert in the barn between the group of us, they'll expect us to kind of train their horse. And I've heard a lot of people say like, listen, I'm, I'm here to take care of your horse's feet, not train your horse to stand for me and do all of those things. I'm sure all of us have run into those owners too that are completely afraid of the animal that they they have adopted and almost it's like that horse can pick up on that and just everybody gets amped up before you've even stepped into the barn. And sometimes it's even better without them there because you'll get like the barn owner will come in and actually hold the horse and it will be a completely different animal because it's not reading the body language of its owner who is scared of what's about to happen next. Right. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I was saying my, my background in safari, um, obviously I spent the first 14 years uh, being a fire in the British Army, which is kind of like going back 200 years in the sense we had a forge, all horses came to our forge. So wherever we were shearing, all the horses came to us you always worked in pairs. So if someone was under the horse, the other one could be standing at its head. It was very rare that you would get the occasional fractious horse, but you'd always have someone with a hand on your belt. So if it did get, because they're all big horses, well, they can pull you out. So there were protocols and there was everything was in place. So, you know, you were free from non educated people coming into that environment, that safe environment. And, you know, classic, again, don't know what it's like in America, but certainly in the UK, you can be there shearing a horse in a barn in the UK and another horse owner pushes behind the horse with a metre-wide wheelbarrow when there's only half a metre's gap there. And next, <laughs> you know, it's stuff, most, there's a lot of accidents that happen in the UK 
because of someone else in the vicinity. Yeah. And it's a lack of common sense or it's a kind of ignorance to anyone else working in that area. You know, it's just like, I've got some up the horse out, you're in my way, so I'm, I'm getting through whether you like it or not. <laughs> that, that's quite common in the United Kingdom. Yeah, and um, I've seen that a lot of people have been sort of impatient in, in getting their horses through and not realizing that it's actually an issue. They'll just lift up the cross tie of the horse you're working on if you're in the middle of the aisle and walk their horse underneath it. And that's one thing that people should be aware of, that even if those horses are buddies in the paddock, just walking through that tight space with us underneath it, anything could happen. One could kick it a fly and then chaos erupts. So I was actually going to ask you, Simon, you have a very different background with the thoroughbreds. Now, I'm sure most of the time you were dealing with people who were pretty used to handling them. The point I'd like to make is that thoroughbreds have this reputation for bad behavior and they are no worse behaved than any other breed. The problem is the people. The reason thoroughbreds are so well behaved, and to put it in perspective, we used to have yearlings brought in in July, so not long from now. These are mainly 15 to 18 month old horses. And Within 10 days, we shod them, and only about 5% would misbehave. Now, they're partially that is because they're suddenly confronted by, uh, uh, you know, being led and lunged, and they, they have so many things to think about. But they're with professionals, and then all the time they were in training, the vast majority were very easy to shoe. We all know that however well-behaved and however well-trained horses are, just like with people, you sometimes get one as a different characteristic. I'm not going to say has a screw loose, but as a different characteristic. And then, as Danny said about the, the retraining of racehorses, which is a great thing that's happening these days. I'm sure it's happening in North America, certainly happening in the UK. Very, very embarrassing when a, a highly valuable thoroughbred, which is actually not very good at racing, goes down, shall we say, descends, and then somebody finds it starving in the field. So they try and avoid that and try and make use of them, and they retrain them. And, of course, the difference between a thoroughbred and every other horse is that every other horse you have to try and get it to gallop, the thoroughbred you have to try and stop. So that's one thing. But the main problem was that you get a thoroughbred that is exercised six days a week, is really, it's well fed, well looked after, well exercised. And then somebody who dearly loves it, buys it, puts it in a field and rides it on a Saturday morning. And they wonder why this horse has changed. Thoroughbreds need lots of exercise and they need continual handling. If they get that, they behave just as well, if not better, than most other breeds. So that, that's been my experience of them, first of all. I had experience, which again is interesting about difficult horses. I used to go out to India. And although sometimes people think of Indians, the Rajasthanis, as horse people, they really are. But most 
of the other parts of India, and of course it's a vast country with a vast population, would not be considered great horse people. So I went out with a bit of trepidation, and I had 120 foals to trim, and there's only one, and we trimmed them in the paddock, and we only had to take one in because it misbehaved. Now that's a pretty good rate. And the reason was not because they were great horse people, but because labor was cheap, and they spent so much time with these horses. They were, you know, even as young foals, they were being groomed, they've been led from one paddock to another, led in and out twice a day. So it's handling that does horses. It doesn't actually even need to be, what should we say, trained handling, or it's just lots of time with horses, you know, habituates them and makes them more sociable. And as Alicia said, I don't know why people are ever surprised when they don't pick the feet up every day. And then the farrier comes along and this horse is, is, you know, saying, what on earth is going on? Why has this person grabbed my foot? Why isn't this person holding my foot up? You know, come on, we have to have a bit of sense. So it, it really isn't rocket science. It's, it's just putting the time in. And I think if people have horses, then they need to put the time in. They'll tell you how much they love the horse. But I would usually say, don't tell me, show me. And... <laughs> That's all you have to do it is that horses actually, you know, they're very sociable creatures and they, they, and I'm not turning soft on us all, they want to be loved. But the way they feel is that they're loved is that they're part of your herd. And that means you only got to watch horses in a paddock, haven't you, rubbing up against each other. And, and that's all we really need to do with horses. And I, I think sometimes there's too much made of horse training and we, I admire those people that have made a fortune out of convincing somebody that they're a great horse trainer. But actually, horses like dogs train themselves, provided you just give them time and do the basics. I've not had a lot of problem with difficult horses. And ultimately, of course, we have the wonderful Demosedan and Torbajizik. And Demosedan... When I went to the States one time and I'm giving a lecture and I mentioned this stuff, I didn't realize it was still banned in the States. Although I'm told it used to get smuggled in through Mexico or somewhere. But to, to put it in perspective, it comes from Finland and the Swedes call it Finnish vodka. And you know, so we have these wonderful, you know, sedatives for horses if ultimately the people can't be bothered to train them, or that one in 50 horse that, yeah, is just an awkward horse. And owners have to make the decision, I think. They either sedate them or they train them, or they, to be cruel, they get rid of them more. Or as, as farriers, as hoof care people, we need to walk away. And it's usually easy to walk away from those type of horses because they're people that have only got one horse, two horse, three horse. Lot different barriers that are in an industry where they've got a barn of 50 or 100 horses, and then they're making this decision. I'll put up with this one difficult one because I don't want to lose the barn. Hmm. But mm -hmm. that's everybody has that uh, individual choice to make, really. For sure. Now, I think it is more difficult, though, when somebody's starting out, they're probably the ones who are taking on those one and, and two horse stops. And there's this sense that, I mean, I have to get through this. And I, I know I went through that a lot. And 
the thing is, is if you, you battle the horse, nobody wins. Cause even if you're done and you've got shoes on it, everybody is not happy with the situation. It just, the horse now is quite afraid of you or whatever. And I think I can actually speak to the sedation in many ways, like as a farrier, if you can convince the client to use it. Dermosa Nangel has been a great thing because for those clients who don't know how to give a needle, that is an option for them. But uh, for those who have the horse that needs the the Finnish vodka, is that what you, they called yeah. it? The Finnish vodka? And need something stronger, uh, the vet has to come. And then that adds so much more expense to the farrier visit. So I've had one farrier friend, she gave the client that choice and they just found another farrier, somebody younger who was willing to take the risk. But I think for some people, if they paid for a few vet visits, it would almost encourage them to do that routine of picking up the feet every day, picking them out and being able to to hold them for a period of time, like Alicia said. And for the the horse owners, to check your horse's feet every day is actually a really good thing because who knows if they've stepped on a street nail or if there's thrush. I have so many clients who ask me, oh, does the horse have thrush? Well, if you pick the feet out every day, you'd probably be able to smell it and you would know it was there. So I, I do think those routines, they're for the benefit of us, but they're also for the benefit of the owners themselves and the horse. Yeah, just a quick one on that. I mean, my ex-wife, and this is one of the many reasons she is my ex-wife, she, she had horses, <laughs> and I was forever chasing her because every time I shot them, she, she wasn't picking the feet out and they smell and they're fresh. But she used to say, why pick them out? Because after I've trotted down the road for 10 metres, it's all fallen out anyway. So, yeah, that, that was when I knew we was in trouble. <laughs> Worst thing you could say to a farrier ever. Can I just say um, that actually the worst thing you can do is get a reputation that you can deal with difficult horses. Yes. Because you will just attract them in. Yep. And it true. can be a bit of a macho thing to say, yeah, I had this horse and, you know, nobody else could chew it and well, nobody else could trim it and I got it done. It's the worst reputation that you're ever going to gain. It, it, you know, in the end, you'll find one that can beat you. That's for sure. Mm. Yeah. And you don't see too many of those people with that reputation who are in the career for a long, long time. A wise man once said, the cemetery's full of heroes. <laughs> Only an army guy could say that. <laughs> But, I mean, it's, it's interesting what Simon's just said there because a lot of this is about perception. I mean, one of the things in the discussion we had on our podcast about um, safety was it's very difficult. I know we spoke uh, before we started this about, you know, laminitis and other sort of problems with horses. One thing I've noticed, it's very difficult to get the message or communicate the message to horse owners of changing behaviours with horses and weight and obesity and stuff like that without sounding like just another farrier moaning about it mm -hmm. yep i i believe uh claire brown who's on on our podcast who uh, works for bfba i mean, 
off the back of the survey we've done, we want to start a campaign to educate horse owners and better prepare farriers through college, etc., and try and change and reduce the risk of these. I mean, like I said earlier, it's a very risky job. No one came into Farry not knowing of the risks, but it's about reducing the risk to try and keep people safe. But a lot of it's about perception, and we've got to look within ourselves and ask how have we allowed this to happen sometimes. And I think, like Simon just said, there's always somebody who will get under these horses. Yep. Yeah, that needs to and I can do it. I think back to my time in, in the army, there was one guy in the forge. And I think the only reason we had him in the forge was because he would get under those horses, but no one else wanted to. Wasn't the best job in the world, but it went out with four shoes on. <laughs> but we were young and we were strong and it was all different times. But I think as an industry, globally let ourselves down. This perception we've created of farriers being very macho, I mean, no offence to any females, but some females are more macho than I am, you know, and we've got this very, very sort of misogynistic kind of, you know, we don't mind getting hurt, we're farriers. And (laughs) and again, not mentioning no names, I was watching a documentary on YouTube the other day, which, quite frankly, in the first 30 seconds they must have said blood, sweat, and tears, sort of like what, several times, and just make it absolutely the toughest job in the world. It was like one of these TV programs where people have a go at joining the special forces. No, they've gone to shoeing school, they've gone to learn a trade. Stop making it such a macho thing because the horse owners expect us to be able to suck all that up. We sell ourselves a little bit sometimes into being sort of like adrenaline junkies or like <laughs> sort of horse wrestlers, but we're not. We're, we're professionals trying to do a very, very accurate job. That mm-hmm. I, I think that's one thing farriers need to do is, is sort of look at the message we send out, says me in the vest and everything else. But, <laughs> you know, I think that's the first thing we've got to do. And then we've got to look at how do we communicate these concerns without sounding like we're just moaning about our job. Yep. Yeah. And something that Brian had said earlier about like the first few years in this career, I feel like is almost an initiation where you get all these horses that nobody else wants to work on. And sometimes you agree to it because you need a paycheck and you aren't sure where your next client is coming from. And not that I want to give away all farrier secrets ever, but there's a local Facebook group that I'm a part of just for hoof care providers where, you know, it's very strictly managed. No owners are in it, but we will warn about dangerous horses or warn about, you know, situations that are not good so that other farriers can know what they're walking into and not be surprised by a horse that kicks or is difficult to work on because, you know, more than just yeah, they're not going to get the most balanced work. They're not going to get the most beautiful job. And if that horse has lameness issues, we can't successfully address it all the time if they're fighting us just to even pick up their feet. But more than that, we don't want to end up out of a career because a horse was so difficult that we injured ourselves and can't get back to it. It's sad that, you know, the first few years you almost have to deal with that and learn that the hard way. 
But if we can bring more awareness to horse owners and also hoof care professionals so that they're not feeling like they have to work on a horse that's not safe. For sure. Yeah. If you make it a standard that you're not going to work on a particular horse that's fractious without sedation, then if everybody kind of sticks to that, it raises that level for everybody. For sure. Like Alicia said, though, it is very difficult for new people starting in this industry. You know, you're trying to build up around, you know, you are going to take on jobs, which me at my stage probably would even look at twice because you need to build the numbers up. You've got things, well, you've got to pay to live. And I see it a lot with students who I've taught over the years. You know, we, we talk a lot at college sort of like in discussions and conversations about how they're going to set their stall out once they qualify and they're not going to do dangerous horses. They're only going to do nice, nice, clean, stable yards. And they're only going to do four a day. They're, you know, all this stuff they come out with, um, they're going to charge a certain price. But once they actually get out there, in reality <laughs> hits, and they halve that uh, minimum price and just will shoot anything, anywhere, anytime. We spoke earlier about when not to text or call me a farrier. But these guys are out there shooting at weekends, Saturdays, Sundays, just because it was convenient for the owner and they're desperate to get owners. Yep. It's quite hard for them to actually go out there and stay very strict to what they will and won't shoot. I mean, I know for myself, when, when I left the army, I was probably in my early 30s. So I wasn't prepared to start at the bottom and work my way up again. So to, for the first two years, I was actually quite strict on whether I went on a yard or not, um, what type of horses I shod, went in at a higher price as opposed to. But it, it is harder. It took me a lot longer to build a full roundup. I mean, that round was probably more based on my qualifications at the time as, as opposed to my reputation because people wanted me because I was cheaper. But I ended up with very good clients long-term. It took me a longer to get there to fill the diary up, but the clientele were a lot better for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, short-term pain for long-term gain. Something that uh, comes up a lot is biting when you're working with them. And I've seen so many of my clients feed treats while while i'm working on a horse uh just in general uh do any of you guys have an opinion on that for a second i thought you were talking about people biting horses <laughs> that's what comes next when they bite me yeah <laughs> yeah i'm sure that gets the message across but um <laughs> i don't know horses very few of them are aggressive with their mouths aren't they but is it from uh, feeding them treats, they they tend to be sort of nibblers. You know what I mean? They won't bite you. They'll just sort of sort of nibble at your shoulder or at your back. I mean, I know every now and again I've heard of um, guys getting the, the horse gets hold of the belt and picks them off the ground, you know. But I actually would have to say we were talking about behavior with horses. I sometimes used to shoe some untied and just let them slightly nibble. They, they weren't biters. There's, there's a difference between that and the aggressive horse that gets hold of you, which I've only had once in my life. And 
that bit me on the stomach. Now, that was when I didn't have a stomach, you know, when I was in my mid-20s. And I have to tell you, I never felt anything so painful. When I looked down, I could see blood seeping through the pores of the skin because it crushed my flesh so hard. But the great thing you have to remember about horses is they never swallow. They will always spit you out. <laughs> so I, I don't have much of a problem with the biters. The real aggressive horse, you should know, and the owner should or their agent should be holding it. Right. On the BFBA survey, just out of interest, of the 283 people who said that they'd been injured, only five of those were actual bite injuries. Okay. Uh, with the majority of them being kicked and sort of stamped on. Um, but yeah, only, uh, it was quite a small number of the injuries which actually came from bites. But that's injuries which ended up with hospitalizations. So obviously, I think there's probably more people get bitten, but it's not worthy of going to hospital. It's just annoying. <laughs> how about you alicia what's your take on this yeah i was gonna say that i mean there's a million things that go through my head when i'm working on a horse and it should be all hoof related but often it's not and a lot of that is what is the horse doing how is the horse acting you know i'm trying to be very aware of how they're approaching me and how i'm approaching them but i will say the biggest thing where i worry about biting I don't know if you feel the same, but when I have their foot forward on the stand, so my back is to the horse and I'm dressing the foot in whatever way and I feel them kind of nuzzle me and the owner thinks it's really cute and, and like, oh, look, they're just like giving you kisses or they're licking you. They're marinating you. Yeah. And, and so the whole time I'm, I'll say something like, well, I don't, you know, don't let them bite me. I, I don't even try to sugarcoat it anymore because I don't want to be bitten. But I will say that I haven't been bitten in that in doing hoof care at all i have been bitten pretty seriously on the back once by a horse that was walk i was walking by the horse in the barn aisle and the horse lunged and bit me so hard that it took a huge chunk of my like shoulder blade like the skin above my shoulder blade but i've never been bitten when working with feet but it is something i do think about and the more we're thinking about other things when we're working on your horse's feet the less we're thinking about their feet so if they could if owners could ease our minds a bit that would help that's classic when you're you've got your foot on the foot stand on the front leg and they start nuzzling your back it, it you kind of feel like you're playing russian roulette don't you yeah with certain ones yep but it's interesting you say about i mean and the owner's going oh that's really cute and all that sometimes when you're playing with a horse and especially if you're scratching its shoulder and you, know, you watch two horses in the field and they, they scratch each other's shoulder with their kind of muzzle or their teeth. And they, when the horse starts scratching your back and you start feeling it rubbing the teeth on your back, then all of a sudden, mm. I don't think there's any malice in that. No. And that's just what horses do. But I'm mm -hmm. not a horse. I don't like it. <laughs> well, obviously, I'm tastier than the three of you because I've been bit more than that. <laughs> oh, no. That's that's because you taste the maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> Another uh, horse behavior related thing that I thought we should address was sometimes I've had this situation and I, I know a few others who have where they 
all their friends get taken out and put in the paddock. And there's one solitary horse left in the barn for you to work on. And it becomes a completely different animal than the one you're used to working on. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that experience has happened to all of us. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a lot of horse sense when somebody does that. And and they do that in professional barns because they want to get all the horses out. And mm-hmm. I, I have a tip for almost the reverse, that if you're working in a paddock, and should we say there's 12 or 15 other horses in there, that's not a safe environment uh, because they mill around. And, you. And again, it's, as Alicia was saying, that you don't concentrate on your work. You, you're thinking about your safety quite rightly. So that's not good for owner horse or you. So the trick is just take them out through the gate, but don't take them away. They can see all their buddies. They stand a lot better. You feel safe. Everything's fine. Took me a long time to learn that, but it's, I think maybe because I came from an era where if we were in a, you know, on a stud farm, there's 15 broodmares, there would be seven people holding them and then you're okay. But the economies and the changes in the industry, it came down to where there was one or two and then it's not safe. It's not safe with that number of horses milling around you. So that's my thing is, again, don't take them away from their environment or their friends, but put them the other side of the gate, and then it's safe. It was such a serious impact, that moving horses around, that when we was in the army, I should imagine it's still done now, but if horses were either coming in the forge or going out the forge or moving in the forge, the army grooms and the army farriers, there were verbal warnings. You had to shout at the top of your voice, horse coming in, horse going out. They do it with the dogs as well, funny enough. But it, but it's common sense. You, you're given an audible warning before you walk through the door, walk into the barn with the horse. So if anything's going on in there, which is someone sure there will be, they know to kind of like put the foot down if it's a fractious horse or you're prepared. It's not a surprise because normally the first thing you know about it when it happens is you're picking yourself off the floor. Think, what caused that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're so fast. Yep. Again, it's common sense. It's just taking responsibility for your actions. Yep, for sure. You have any experience with this, Alicia? This is not the way that I would ideally approach it. So if you have a better tip, then I'll take it. But there have been times where horses that are really herd bound, where the whole barn is turned out and the horse does not want to be in the barn alone, but the horses are out. I mean, I want horses outside. I want horses turned out. I think that's healthy for them. Uh, But, you know, if they're turned out, most of the day, there's really no time that I can go see them where they're not uh, separated from other horses. So either I'll have the owner, like I'll, I'll work on the horse, like Simon said, by the paddock or on occasion accommodated to when the, the horses are back in their stalls, like either earlier in the morning or in the afternoon. But I want to try to keep my business to business hours because we do have families. We have other lives besides hoof care. But I do think that it's really hard to work on a horse that's incredibly herd bound, that they're just calling for other horses. They're trying to jump around. They're trying to turn around to see where other horses are. So as long as they can see another horse or uh, be somewhere that they feel more comfortable. So we're not trying to take an hour for a 15 minute trim because the horse won't stop spinning or something. That doesn't have to be keep the whole herd in. 
you know, just, I mean, you watch horses' behaviour. They've normally got a best friend. Mm-hmm. And as long as the best friend's there, you know, it's one horse for the sake of shearing another. I mean, I know, again, back in my time in London with the Household Cavalry, we spent six months shearing the Queen's horses down at Buckingham Palace, the carriage driving horses. Just behind Buckingham Palace was a lovely, lovely little really old forge. And we'd go down there two afternoons a week and be shearing the uh, Cleveland Bays and the uh, Windsor Greys. And but we found very quickly the only way to shoe them was whatever horse they were teamed up in the carriage with was to have that in the forge at the same time because it's the only way <laughs> they were like proper best friends forever. And wherever one went, the other one had to go as well. But the other one didn't need shoeing, and we could have had another horse in there shoeing that, but it just made our life so much easier. Right. I love the name dropping, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> All I can say is, Danny, I'll never get my knighthood because I actually turned the Queen down for shoeing a horse. So oh. she also ended up with you. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> oh, man, I didn't know it was going to get so contentious. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the horse behavior. When you have a handler and you've obviously requested them to be there because the horse is potentially an issue. There is nothing worse than having that handler be distracted by cell phone. And I'm sure we've all experienced that where them just standing there isn't going to do the whole job if they're looking in another direction at their phone or or whatever. So have you, you had this experience? I'm seeing a lot of head nods. Yeah, but you know, every brand of Rasp will turn a phone off. <laughs> words of wisdom right there (laughs) i think horses can tell i mean i'm i'm sure horses can tell when owners are distracted and some will take advantage of that and owners aren't paying attention to notice when the horse is you know being silly because they're distracted i actually have my owners have been really good about not using their phone so i have nothing to complain about but (laughs) Well, that's good. I mean, I only share a couple of days a week now because I'm teaching the rest of it. But, I mean, I don't have that many horses I come across, maybe one or two, which I don't get the owners to tie up. I I need them to be around because they've got to operate the kettle. But (laughs) I won't go to a yard or a bar. I won't chew a horse if there's no one there. That's the first thing. The owner's got to be, or a staff member's got to be in situ and sort of within certainly earshot, if not sort of like, I, I sort of like range. But it, it's, I don't have many horses which are shoe which have got to be held. Mm-hmm. It's very rare. You might get the occasional one that likes like nibbling your back and I'd get them to sort of hold the head. But normally I'll just tie them up there. One of the biggest problems, we, I don't know again about it, in North America, but it's certainly a problem in the UK now, is horse owners have got this thing, if they tie the horse up, they've also got to tie it up with a hay net. <laughs> oh, really? No, yeah. I haven't, haven't experienced and that. I, I, if you've not experienced that, obviously a hay net's been designed so the horses have to quite fight to get the hay out of the hay net. 
So you're holding one foot, and now the horse is yanking hay out. And, um, yeah, it can be quite tiresome. But, I mean, if a horse can't be tied up and just stand still for an hour, then that's not been put into their training. Again, people used to get horses out of the stable, tie it up to groom it, or tie it up in a stable to groom it. And that doesn't even take place. Um, so horses are just not used to be tied up for long periods of time anymore. Right. Horse owners automatically go, I'll give it a hay net, whether it needs it or not. So when we used to teach methods of restraint, one of the first things you would do to the horse if it was being slightly fractious was either someone stand and hold it or give it something to distract it, like a hay net. But by doing that, you're kind of rewarding it for being naughty, surely. <laughs> but I guess people do that with parenting these days, don't they? <laughs> I nearly said this when we were talking about horses biting you. The other thing about hay nets is that, you know, the way horses eat, they've always got their mouth full and it's dropping out all the time. And, you know, if you do the horse tied up and you put the foot on the leg stand, now, women tend to have higher waisted jeans on. Men have that builder's bum thing. <laughs> I'm not going to say they show a cleavage at times, but that's where the food goes. <laughs> it goes down the back there. So I would say, you know, we need to stop two things. Firstly, we need to stop people tying having them with a hay net at all times, as you say, if they're going to be tied up to be shot. And we just need to train uh, men to wear higher-waisted, uh, you know, if they're going to bend over in front of people. Anyway. <laughs> Braces, that's the answer. My Lululemons completely cover that. There's never a problem. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, I think I have the most hair out of everybody in this group, and I just end up oh, going home with hay wow. in my hair. <laughs> Just offensive. <laughs> uh, I think Brian's doing pretty well on the hair front. <laughs> and uh, I, I haven't got a lot on the top of my head now. But anyway, <laughs> we, won't, we won't go there. Okay. I've had owners comment on hay in my hair. It's a weekly occurrence at least. So, <laughs> uh, Well, now let's go to environment. And what are some of the things that you guys have seen sort of pop up that you find would make your job safer or better uh, from an environmental situation? Yes, Danny. It's, and again, it depends. I mean, I've been to a lot of different countries and like in the UK, there are big barns, there are big livery yards, there's, you know, you've got the racehorse industry. Where, but then in the UK, there's a lot of these Horse owners, which have got one, maybe two horse, they may have a small field. The stables are always on the furthest side of the field from the actual road, so you've got to get across the field, and there's no hard stand or anywhere safe to shoot shoot the horse. Now, interestingly, obviously, in the United Kingdom, we've got the Farris Registration Act and the Farris Registration Council, and actually in the guidelines... There's obviously a lot of rules and regulations and code of conduct for us farriers, but there's also bits of what the horse owner should provide. And that is a firm, flat, level, hard standing with cover from the weather and adequate lighting. Very rarely happens. Mm -hmm. I've been to yards in the past where, without sounding arrogant, I've pulled up on the 
the so-called yard, wound down my window and quickly driven back off again. <laughs> it kind of made me feel sorry for the farriers from the First World War in the mud, mud bath of the Somme. You know, it, it was like there's no way you could safely, not only safely shoe a horse, but actually do an uh, optimal job. You know, it'd be like, there's just, it would be impossible. But that happens quite a bit. And again, a lot of that's down to education of horse owners not understanding what is required to be in place to create the well-shod horse. But again, for us farriers to try and educate the owners about this does tend to sound like us moaning about our environment. Yep. So yet again, the, the farrier just sounds like he's moaning. You know, it's it's difficult. Yep, for sure. Danny just mentioned it. Is it one of my biggest pet peeves? <laughs> and this is going to sound silly, but, you know, if they're standing in mud, I pick up the foot and the horse maybe doesn't stand perfectly. The second I get the foot clean with my wire brush, they yank their foot down and step back in the mud again. And <laughs> I just, I, have to, I literally just end up spending half my time picking up the foot, cleaning it off, trying to get any amount of work done before the horse slams its foot down in the mud again. So yeah, hard standing is definitely something that I think is is necessary, especially in wet environments. I actually added a page to my website that outlines, you know, ideal environment and ideal circumstances to work in. And that's one thing I mentioned, along with shade or cover. I don't think that all owners realize how warm <laughs> we get when we're working just from generating body heat. Uh, I always joke that my ideal temperature to work in is like 50 degrees Fahrenheit because at that point I feel like it's 80 degrees outside. So if it's in bright sun and I don't have any shade, then it feels like it's, you know, 120 degrees outside. And that's something that I would, I want owners to realize because when they're standing there and they're not feeling hot or tired or sweaty or difficult, you know, it's it's much different for us when we're under the horse. And again, I mean, I say, going back to the environment view, I, mean, I know we're talking predominantly about safety, but there's the whole thing of how how can you stand back and assess a horse when it's not on level flat? Yeah, exactly. Concrete? Yep. And again, I don't know what the weather conditions are like um, where you guys are at the moment, but certainly in the United Kingdom in the winter when it's wet and muddy, you go through tools a lot quicker. I mean, like, if you normally have two weeks out of a rasp in the summer, you're probably lucky to get a week mm -hmm. out of a rasp in, in the winter because they clog up with mud and grit. You get your wire brush, you clean them out, and the wire brush blunts it by brushing them out. Knives go blunter a lot quicker. Again, we've all been there before where we're in wet mud and you're trying to knife out soles and frogs and your hands are slippy, and next minute you've cut your hand open. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever cut my hand open in the summer. It's always been in the winter. So <laughs> then you get mud in there and you get an infection. So it, it's all relative, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm going to come at it slightly different. I think, you know, the environment from a safety point of view is also litter blowing in the yard. We know nothing convinces a horse more that it's under attack than just some bag of, you know, candy bag or something blowing across the, the ground. So, yeah, tidy yard. And also, 
you know, shoeing areas, uh, and even some quite modest places have shoeing areas, and they start off with the best of intentions. But because they're undercover, they start to collect stuff. That isn't moved out because they know you're coming in an hour's time. So whether it's a broken down lawnmower or a rusty bike or some other implement, and so you know, and those do add to the danger because the horse will, you know, either just touch it with its foot and that makes it jump, or, or you know, worse than that, get a foot trapped. Or as a, as I say, so I think the environment is. All, all our environment, our whole soon are totally man-made. Even that paddock with the grass is man-made. But it tends to be more in yards and barns that, uh, should we say, where they're more uh, more managed and, and, and even the best intentions that, you know, I think it's uncluttered we want places and light and spacious. You know, if you're jammed in, you're in danger as well. I have shod horses in rather, should we say, constrained places that it might be all right to tie a horse up in there, but not to get somebody alongside it lifting, you know, their feet at that point. And, you know, if the horse gets frightened, this half a ton of flesh for, you know, a fraction of a second doesn't really care who you are or where you are. <laughs> it's going to try and get away. And if you're in the way, you know, we we have this thing now about, um, oh, I don't know, Danny's more up with the health and safety where not you don't just make a shoeing plan, you you do, a, you know, a safety check, as it were. Risk assessment. There you go, a risk assessment. I knew there'd be some official term. I don't know where that one goes in North America, but UK, yeah, risk assessment, which, of course, everybody – you know, we're all in, in the same sort of world and they bridle a bit and say, oh, you know, because they imagine it's filling in five forms. But actually, it's only doing what sensible people do. It's just quickly look round and say, no, that's not safe there. That needs being moved. So I think, I, I mean, it is better that we have a name for it now. And I'm sure Danny in the class has to tell the, his students, do a risk assessment. As I say, I think if the message has got over, this isn't some official thing where you have a clipboard and you fill in a form it's more <laughs> just ensure it's safe you know because if you shoe horses long enough or if you trim horses long enough whatever could happen is going to happen it's mm. a numbers thing you know yep, I, sure. I tell everybody that just walks behind a horse and say so you'll do it once you'll do it 10 times you might even do it a thousand times but at a thousand and one that horse will take your head off if you, you know, so just don't ever do it. Don't ever do those things. And then that's why I'm still standing here. Look, healthy. We've got all my bits and, uh, and, um, you know, 50 years of working with horses because I never trusted when people said, no, nah, no, it's safe. It's quiet. And yeah, they're all safe and quiet until you don't want to be the person laying in hospital. And they say, do you know what? That's the first time it's ever kicked anybody. <laughs> so. That was my first lesson. They all kick. They all bite. If you give a chance for an accident to happen, it will happen. I'd just like to point out, though, uh, apparently Simon's garden is littered with the remains of loads of dead apprentices. (laughs) (laughs) As long as it's not me. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs)
But yeah, going back to the risk assessment thing, having been involved in organising lots of different competitions for different uh, shows in the UK and college and everything else, when you put on these events, because it's always like the show organisers have always got the big sort of insurance, sort of health and safety, etc. So organising a competition, you always have to fill out a risk assessment. So when you actually start looking at the the risk to a farrier competitor, so not only have you got fire risk, bits of metal going in your eyes, then you and it always gets very complicated because these are not equine people you're filling this risk assessment out. These are sort of um, companies which own showgrounds. So as soon as you start to involve the horse at the shearing competition, that's when your risk assessment goes from like one page to several pages because, again, it, it's a very unpredictable creature which doesn't speak. So there's all these other risks. I mean, like one of the classic examples, I used to run the competition up at uh, Lincoln County Show, which is also about two miles from the Royal Air Force Base where the Royal Air Force display team keep their jets. So obviously, every time I have the Lincoln County show, you always get a flyby and a big <laughs> aerobatic display from the Red Arrows. And because it's on home territory, they come in low. We forgot to put that into the risk assessment. <laughs> and we was halfway through the hunter class one year, and all of a sudden, there's red, white, and blue smoke billowing out of these jet fighters, which are literally touching the tops of the marquees. We didn't account for that. But, you know, it's... Being able to see the unseen, really, with um, risk assessments, and you know, just because it has never happened to you doesn't mean it's not going to. Mm-hmm. But again, every day we probably all subliminally do it when we get out of our trucks at the yard. We look around and we think, "Yeah, that wheelbarrow's got to move." You know, it's in the way. If I fall over, if I if I roll, do a commando roll out from underneath that horse, I'm going to impale myself on that. Normally, <laughs> you know. It's, but again, it's not always us who should be the um, horse owners should be kind of sort of like aware of all this as well. You know, it shouldn't be there in the first place, or at least move that way before we get there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this is probably off topic. Dogs. <laughs> I know it yeah. seems like it's obvious, but. Simon said, owners say it's safe. It's never happened before. I've had owners tell me that their horses are great with dogs. Their dogs are always around their horses. The horses are used to the dogs being under their feet. But when when we're working on a horse, we're the new element in that situation. And that can make them a little more uncertain or a little more on alert as a prey animal. And then all of a sudden they have this dog that, yeah, they've known the dog for however many years. But I always get incredibly nervous myself when there's a dog that's running around or right under my feet, right under the horse's feet. And my nerves are going to play into the horse's nerves that are going to play into the whole situation. So yeah, I don't want dogs under, <laughs> under horses when I'm working. Well, I mean, I had a situation once where a dog was getting un- in the way. I was underneath a horse. I was working away on the front foot. The dog was eating bits of trim frog beneath the feet and it, it was annoying me and I was trying to sort of shoo it away and then when I did actually pick up my toolbox to move it a bit closer dropped it on the dog's foot which then spooked the dog which then spooked the horse now I'm laying flat on the face with the tools everywhere um so yeah I don't like dogs either 
Yep. The horse was perfectly fine. It was the dog's fault. <laughs> and I love dogs. I just, I don't want dogs around when I'm working. Nope. That totally makes sense. Now, just to riff off of something that Simon said with the best of intentions when people create these shelters, I've been fortunate to work in some really nice new made barns in my area. And one of the things that they've started doing is making a farrier area, a working area. But this area is always well away from where all the rest of the horses are stabled. And so it's to keep us out of the way and and out of sight, out of mind. But those horses get amped up. They've been pulled away from all their buddies and now they're isolated in this room. So I just, I think that's another, I mean, it plays into a lot of things we just talked about where you're really getting that prey animal into a very uncomfortable situation for it and it's not going to behave the same way it it normally would so in a few of those places i find i'm i'm working in the grooming stalls with everybody else and there's this huge area off to the other end that (laughs) nobody ever uses or sees so but it just seems to be safer I was going to say, if then you have a horse that's anxious at all about getting their feet done, they know if they're going to that area of the barn, they're getting their feet yep. done. <laughs> that's true. Yep. That's very true. And again, I have, I have a yard down the road from where I'm right now, which you go to. And it's a lovely yard and lovely people, but they've got this wash box stroke shoeing bit. So the floor's always wet. Yep. There's a, there's a drainage ditch down the middle of the concrete, and there's loads of separate hemmed in sort of like shower stools as well. So it's like there's no room to, to work in there. So you have to go to the bit with the drainage bit. And because it's off the main yard, no horse will stand in there on its own. So you, you invariably end up shearing on the gravel in the middle of the yard, which, again, it isn't ideal because you can't really assess the feet. You can't look at them on the ground because so it's not flat, it's gravelly. There's gravel in the foot every time you pick the foot up. And the amount of times... You end up with like a subsidiary abscess because a small bit of gravel's got stuck between the shoe and the foot, and now on you didn't spot it. It's <laughs> it's just like it's just little things like that could be made so much better. All they'd have to do is the little bit where they do the horses feed. There's a like little sort of lean to where they do the feed, which is actually in the centre of the yard. If they turned that into the shoeing bay and used the shoeing bay as the feed thing, but again, that means someone's got to move all the feed, so that doesn't get changed either. So. It would make our life a lot more easier, but it's a lot of hassle for the yard owner. Mm-hmm. It's their inconvenience, isn't it? Which then becomes our inconvenience. But in the end, I mean, for a lot of these people, I deal with a lot of horses that are showing. And if they really want their horse to show at its best and not get injured or have any number of problems associated with that, it's in their best interest to set things up the best for us so that we can do our best job and then the trickle-down effect goes from there. But it, it's hard to incentivize that or, or at least demonstrate the incentives for those people. Now, another thing I, I thought we should touch on was fire safety. There are so many places I, I go into. I, I mean, I had one place where they wanted me to hot-chew the horse and they had me walk through the sawdust shavings area to go and work on the horse in between my truck and where the horse was standing. And there are so many times where stall doors are open right beside us and shavings are all over the floor and things like that. I just wondered if there were some things that 
you guys have thought of or seen happen that you want to to avoid in those situations? Well, I think you've said it, that combustible materials need to be kept <laughs> out of the way. I mean, I have seen, yeah, I have seen uh, bedding set on fire uh, because, you know, we were talking about difficult horses, so they decide to shoe it in the stable. Farrier brings his rig up nearby, still insistent on a hot shoeing. Yeah, shoe falls off the whatever system they have for carrying the shoe. It's rolling about red hot and trying to get that out, trying to stamp out the uh, flames. So, yeah, far easier if we say let's not have fires and red hot shoes near combustible bedding because it's, you know, it is usually the bedding. I don't think maybe somebody's done well and set something else on fire, <laughs> but it's usually, usually the yep, bedding. for sure. Um, another thing, uh, and it touches on fire safety as well is I can't tell you how many times I've plugged my rig into a socket that is half cracked, the grounds missing or in it from some other farrier and the box is exposed. I think things like that. I'm always amazed that there aren't more barn fires mm. than what we see. Yeah. I'd agree. Are there any other environmental concerns you guys can think of that we should touch on? A lot of it comes down to common sense. And it's surprising that some of these things need to be brought up. But I mean, even just like not grain, like feeding grain to all the other horses while you're trying to work on a horse. Mm -hmm. And then that horse is very angry that they're not getting grain at that moment. Yeah. Things like that, which I get it. If it's a, if it's a boarding barn or a show barn, and they have a routine and they have things that need to get done. Sometimes you don't always think about the farrier, but it's a way to keep us safe and keep the horses happy. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. So Alicia said that most of the injuries like on the survey, which were caused by sort of handlers. And again, a lot of it is down to this lack of common sense, which and I, I think when, when an incident does happen, if an owner has not used common sense or has done something can cause, you know, move their horse and you're under another horse and you end up rolling out from under the horse, when you point out to them, because a lot of the time they'll try and ignore it like it never happened. It happened to me a few weeks ago in the yard where someone did something to their horse or, and brought it onto the yard whilst I was shooting this dress large horse which that horse jumped, made my horse jump. I ended up rolling across the floor. And the woman, she just wouldn't make eye contact with me and kind of scurried off as quick as she could mm -hmm. to avoid that situation. And when I said so, when she came back onto the yard about, you know, just in future, you know, use a bit of common sense, give us a bit of um, heads up they get really offended because it is common sense. It's something we are all supposed to have. If she was something which she just didn't realise and she hadn't been taught it, that's fine. She would have just listened to, oh, you know, next time. But because it's common sense, I think people just close down a lot more and just think they're having a go at them. I think there's quite a lot of psychological barriers to um, getting the kind of sort of trying to educate horse owners sometimes. Like I said earlier on several times. Without it sounding like we're moaning at them. Yep, for sure. 
Yeah. And I almost want to like apologize to owners if we're coming off like the, we're just like angry and venting about things, but it comes down to like, this could be life or death. Yep. You know, it could be a situation where we could die. I mean, I know of, I know stories of farriers that have died in situations that didn't seem like they would be dangerous. It doesn't always have to be this overt, like, oh, this horse kicks and strikes and all of a sudden the farrier got hurt. Like sometimes it's a very simple thing that could be avoided if we took the steps to make sure that the horse felt safe or comfortable or, you know, the environment was safe. And then we can make sure that we're able to get a horse done without worrying about ending up in the hospital. Yeah, that's a great point. I like the fact that everybody's used the term common sense. And yet the way this conversation has gone shows that it's not actually common. But I think it's well proven that we always use the term common sense when we know something. But people that don't know it are not using common sense. All right. People get complacent and even couldn't care less, you know, so they sometimes do things that they know are not right. And they're probably the ones that get angry with you, Danny. But one thing I did think about, and I hope Brian's not going to say he was going to get to this, is that we didn't really cover when we're talking about uh, safety is, um, you know, safety wear. I'm, I'm sure all four of us wear an apron to work on a horse's foot. But do we all wear safety boots? And what about even eye protection? Or a lot more people nowadays wear gloves and not even just in cold countries like Canada, Brian. Sometimes they... <laughs> but, you know, I, I just thought that do we take enough our own safety seriously? I still see people working around horses wearing trainers i don't know maybe they've never had it isn't just a horse standing on your toe it's when as you jump on them that that you know it i saw enough people wearing sandals around horses last week here over here when the sun was out <laughs> we went up to at least 26 degrees there was, there was bikinis and sandals and all sorts of yards it was you're gonna have to translate that for alicia yeah that's about 80 Three or something, isn't it? Uh, and add 30, yeah. Here's the thing on safety. It's something I was thinking about just the other day. Of Again, why has this happened? Again, if we go back 40, 50, 60 years plus, I know certainly in the United Kingdom, we didn't have gas forges. There was the occasional mobile coke forge, but most farriers were based in a forge and most in a village or side of a town or whatever and horses went to the forge or shearing smiths or whatever you want to call it. A bit like how we had in the army. When you take your horse into that environment, you're taking your horse into someone else's environment. That's someone else being the farrier. He knows where everything is. He's got a shearing area. He's got the fire over there. He's kept it clean, tidy. You're in his world. Back then as well, you did what your farrier told you to do because he was the only farrier in your village. And if you were upset him, he wasn't going to shear your horse and you'd be... You know, that's how it worked. When we had the invention of the gas forge and the van at, or whatever rig you have, and we started going out to clients, so 70s, 80s, back into the 90s and all that, the whole dynamic changed. We started going to their house. And 
I don't think, I mean, let's go to the virgin in days of the whole health and safety thing anyway. I don't think Farry has ever sat back and actually thought, actually, we need to um, put something in place here. So really, this conversation is about 30, 40 years too late. <laughs> but it doesn't mean we can't act on it now. It doesn't mean we can't make a change now. But we, these things should have been put into place back then. Yep, for sure. It's no good looking back, Danny. And <laughs> the youngsters like you, there's still time to, you know, to rescue you. I'll say for you, there's not much to look, look forward to, though, is there, Left, really? <laughs> well, if you're saying that having podcasts with you is my life, yes. I do have, <laughs> still have a few ambitions. <laughs> This wasn't on your bucket list? <laughs> no, funny not. And nobody will, nobody will take me seriously if I uh, regressively put it on it, you know. <laughs> much as I'm happy to be here in such <laughs> hallowed company. Well, I guess for our last topic, it was something I just wanted to touch on. It's just basically... Uh, we kind of alluded to it because we discussed it before the the record button was pressed was just that the certain aspects of things that we tell the clients, especially when it comes to their horse's health, that may not necessarily be listened to or taken seriously. Uh, does anybody want to take that torch? Well, for, for a start, I mean, it, it kind of goes down to what we were saying about everything to do related to the horse owner, like I kept saying about it's hard to get your point across without them feeling that you're just moaning or having a go. I mean, any of us who have been in a long-term relationship, when our partners start moaning at us, we just shut down, don't we? <laughs> I do it most of the time. But no, it, and it's, it's the same when it comes to horse obesity. You know, that's it. Classic topic, you know, horse obesity, laminitis prevention and all that. And again, I had one the other day with a client, really good client, the daughter's pony, which is a very fine kind of like long-legged pony. I'd only shot them both five weeks ago and I turned up and it almost doubled in size. And we just literally, we had, we had a dry spell at the beginning of the spring in the UK and the ground went very hard. But when we had a month of rain, then the sun came out, and everything's kind of doubled in size. And, and I had it with my own partner when I shot her horse. I went, well, she put a lot of weight on, and it was almost like I'd offended her. No, she hasn't. And you're like, well, I always say it's a bit like, it's a bit like your favourite sort of like going to court trousers. So you hopefully don't wear that suit very often. But if you have put on weight or lost weight, when you put that pair of going out trousers on, you notice that they're either, but that pair of trousers you wear every day tends to sort of move around your body and you don't realise it getting tight or loose. And it's the same with horses' weight. You see your horse every day, you won't notice it, mm -hmm. you know, because it's a gradual thing. Whereas we get that opportunity to see the horse every five, six weeks. We notice the change. And as it was, this, this pony just literally its neck had got that fat it couldn't even scratch its own shoulder <laughs> when i said this to the horse owner it was all i had a big long list of excuses but i'm doing this i'm doing that and it's like she was almost offended and i'm like this is this isn't about this is about animal welfare this is about me trying to help you 
I'm trying to give you advice, not upset you. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a weird thing. And I, I was saying earlier, it's Claire Brown who put, did the survey for the BFBA. I know they're obviously trying to take this to the next step now and try and work out how to make Farry a safer place and how to educate horse owners. And I had many a conversation with her on the telephone. And, you know, there are people who work for companies, especially with advertising and marketing, and their sole purpose is, is to work out with the campaign how to change people's perception. And um, I, I believe she's going to be talking to some people who do that kind of thing. So that could be quite interesting to find out what comes back from there and how we put the uh, BFBA campaign forward. Because, again, it's all very well us. I mean, again, the survey and the campaign we've started, but appeared in the Horse and Hound magazine last week, which is the big sort of prestigious horse magazine in the United Kingdom. Um, so getting other sort of equines or publications and social media on board is going to be paramount to educating these people. But it's how the best way to do it, because you kind of only get one shot, or as soon as they've shut down on you, they're just never going to listen. Right. And let's face it, horse owners, in, in their eyes, we make loads of money out of showing their horses were all far too expensive and why should we care? It's not the point though. People people can get really hurt. And if you get hurt, you can't make money. So Yeah. Yeah. And I think you alluded to it too that we're not telling owners issues because we're angry with them or because we don't like them or because we're trying to be difficult. Um, whether it's safety or or whether it's something, you know, health related for the horse. It's because we see a lot of horses that we see this chain of events happen. We see correlation between oh if the shoeing area is really cluttered i've seen this happen where a horse hits this acts out barrier gets injured or you know i see this i've seen horses that get fat in this way get this crest and then all of a sudden they founder and you know you see the correlation and because we see these chain of events we want to warn owners before there's an issue and it's not you know, trying to be confrontational or difficult. It's just that we want to prevent things where we can. Yeah. The whole point of this, this conversation isn't to shame anybody. It's to make them aware just so that they can do better for their horses and, and save us (laughs) so we can keep taking care of their horses. I think the, the problem is we live in a society now where people don't like negativity and Unfortunately, all these things we have talked about, it's very hard to talk about without sounding negative. Yeah, for sure. You've let your horse get too fat. You've caused me to injure myself. You know, it's, I mean, they're both quite negative things, really. But again, I keep saying about, it's about changing perceptions. And maybe we need to look a lot more at the way how we communicate these things. For sure. Yeah, I mean, the farrier safety thing, it also lies on us as well. We do have to make boundaries as to what situations we're going to put ourselves into and which ones we're going to walk away from. Right. Just two things on what Danny said. One was he talked about a long-legged pony, and I had a job listening after that point because I was trying to imagine this creature that's (laughs) a long-legged pony. (laughs) And he also said that, in the horse and hound last week. Well, I was in the horse and hound last week, Danny, and your old boss, the Queen. 
The Horse and Hound claims to be the world's biggest selling horse magazine, but I don't know. In the States, it seems to me that there's more quarter horses than the rest of the world put together or something, but I don't know. I'll leave it at that. I, I did think one thing that is a danger to farriers, and we can pass on, is, of course, is zoonosis. And we didn't really discuss that, did we? That, you know, ringworm, I got ringworm as a kid, fortunately on my knee, because I, I think a lot of people don't realise that ringworm on people, it will scar them. I mean, I can still see the pock marks on my knees uh, 50 years later. So you wouldn't want it on your face, would you? So I think there's this communication about that and the fact that if you go from one barn to another, there's a danger that you transport this to another barn. So, that, again, we were just saying about communication. You know, there needs to be big communication when you have something like that. Mm. I, I can never remember the list of zoonoses which are human to equine transmittable, but we eradicated rabies a long time ago from the UK. Unfortunately, it's stayed out. But I think you still have um, rabies in the States, don't you? And, and horses, you know, and we were talking about biting. So hmm. the first thing to do is offer your horse a bucket of water. If it doesn't take the bucket of water, watch out. It might have rabies, okay? So, uh, you know, but in all seriousness, people have had rabies from being bitten by horses. Wow. In the States, it's a required vaccine. They have to get it yearly. Yeah. Uh, horses, not people. We um, managed to eradicate it. And they, so people in the UK, the, you know, the, the laws governing the movement of dogs more than, you know, not, not horses as such, but dogs, is really strict for that reason that, that we have managed to keep it out. And everybody says you can't keep something out like that forever. So it will... It will happen. But there are others. And I think the, the ringworm is, yeah, it's a lot easier treated now, but it's not pleasant. And, you know, you should be aware you don't want to get it and you don't really want to pass it from one horse to another. And it's it's really quite easy to do that with ringworm. Well, and on a similar topic, we've had uh, in our area and I guess the US and parts of Europe, there was the herpes virus that yeah. had come through and there's this whole sort of shame situation going on with that where if a barn has it they won't tell you and i've had that happen with strangles as well and i thankfully am in communication with most of the vets in my area and would learn of it through them as a horse owner you're much better to tell us because First of all, you can stop us from taking it to the next spot. Even if it doesn't affect us, it can do a complete detriment to the horse population in your area because we go to so many different places and we become the typhoid Mary of whatever disease it is. So that is something that we're professionals. If you tell us that something's an issue and you don't want it divulged or whatever, I mean, Within reason, we're not going to just spread it around, but at the same time, you can tell us so that we don't come to your barn or or we make it our last stop of the day and then burn our clothes afterwards. Just a quick one on that, and I'll send you the link after, which you might want to put it in the show notes. 
So uh, one of the UK equine charities uh, last month in this country, uh, they do this every year, they have uh, Strangles Awareness Week. And this year they did a series of podcasts with the horse owners, uh, various different types of equine professional, including farriers. Um, and there's, I think there's about five or six episodes. And there's a lot of good stuff. A, why is Strangles a problem? What is Strangles? What farriers can do to sort of prevent the spread of it, you know, it was it was a very very well, well thought out, uh, informative campaign. So I'll um, cool. it strangles it strangles awareness week. It's obviously on YouTube and the normal podcast platform. So have a look on that for further information on that. But there was a lot of stuff about biosecurity, which is um, a bit of a buzzword. I mean, especially like say with the equine herpes, and there's been quite a few few uh, equine flu outbreaks in the UK. Over this last year or so, it's not all about COVID, you know. Simon's right. I mean, sort of zoonosis and biosecurity are quite major buzzwords nowadays. Like, you know, COVID-19 being an exact example, you know, started off in a little town in China. And before you know it, three million people, yeah. The world's a lot smaller place with a lot more people in it now. You know, these things. And again, horses, the way horses travel around the globe. Mm hmm Obviously, we can blame the horse racing industry for that, Simon, but, you know, so these things do get sort of passed around a lot more than it ever would have been a problem 100 years ago. So For sure. I'm aware of the time and how much I've taken of all of your mornings and afternoons, but is there anything else anybody thinks we should touch on before we go? No. Got through all my notes, Brian. <laughs> can I just finish... Just for a couple of statistics, just because I did mention at the start, I think they're quite important. So the survey they get the British Farriers and Blacksmith Association carried out in the UK, of the people who responded, at least 76% have had to, over their careers, have had at least one visit to a hospital because of their injury. 32% of them have had over three visits to a hospital and 38% have had lasting physical impairment. Hmm. When you look at those figures, it's quite a serious thing. Yep. Well, what a happy note to end on, Danny. Thank you for cheering us all up with that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been great, guys. Thank you very much for doing this. Hey, it's been great. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.